He signs off the call with his usual, Love you, Mom. The farewell is like a thousand before it. Nothing stands out. There's absolutely no reason for anyone to believe that the young man is about to disappear into thin air. Later, the moment will become one of the most significant in the family's history. It's a moment they can never take back, and one which will set their lives on an entirely new path. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 130, The Disappearance of Keegan Deploy. This episode is sponsored by AdBot. Running this podcast is time-consuming. And, well, it's just me trying to get it all done. To keep True Crime South Africa up there as a chart-topping podcast, I can't afford to spend time managing my own online marketing campaigns like Google and Bing. Thankfully, there's AdBot. AdBot manages your Google and Bing ads, optimizing them around the clock. All you do is choose your monthly budget and let AdBot do the rest. If you're a fellow one-person team like me, visit myadbot.com to sign up and enjoy three months free. Use promo code TRUECRIME at checkout. A huge thank you to AdBot for sponsoring this episode. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Leslie, Doreen Janssen van Vieren, Heidi Stierman, Sivu Yile Mussel, Kathy Gardiner, Lizelle Smith, Haley Wagner, and Cassandra Cohen. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Kaba. I haven't done an unsolved or a missing persons case for far too long. 
considering the amazing impact that past episodes have had on cases, it's actually a complete travesty. Unsolved cases do take a lot more work to put together, and although I admittedly have been insanely busy, it's still no excuse, because these are the most important cases to cover. So I finally kicked my own butt into gear and got going. This week's episode has been a long time in the making, and it's been on my radar really almost from the beginning. But I had no idea how deep this case went until I started researching it properly. If you haven't listened to the Missing Persons Update episode I did last year, you may not understand why there's a different song in this episode. That song, called Void by a brother and sister team called Fragmented, is True Crime South Africa's Missing Persons Anthem. The artists are Jesse and Alyssa Zhao, the niece and nephew of Missing Desra Reed, whose case I've also covered on True Crime South Africa. The incredibly talented pair wrote and performed Void in tribute to their missing aunt and all other missing people. And I think it's an incredibly fitting way to back up this and future Missing Persons episodes. I'll play out this episode with the full version for you to listen to. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Keegan's mom, Linda, who's an ordinary mom who's been thrust into the world of missing people and had her life inextricably changed forever. Research on this case also came from a few other sources close to the case. Some I will name and others I cannot. But I am incredibly grateful to all who shared their time and information with me. So, let's get into episode 130, The Disappearance of Keegan Deploy. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. One of the most important parts about covering unsolved cases is that we often get to hear directly from the family members of the missing person or victim about who their loved one is or was. Oh, and about that. You'll hear me consistently refer to Keegan in the present tense, as I always try to do with all missing people. I figure that if their family members can maintain hope, then I can do that too. I spoke to Linda Buchanan Deploy, Keegan Deploy's mom, over Zoom, and she's going to introduce us to her son and give us some background on his life. Keegan was my firstborn. Um, he was born in 1994. It was a bit of a surprise pregnancy. <laughs> um, I did get married to Keegan's biological father, Tom. Unfortunately, he left me when I was pregnant, unfortunately. Things didn't work out. When Keegan was about probably 15 months old, I met my current husband, and he became basically father figure to Keegan. As in, you know, um, he obviously moved in together and he was basically bringing Keegan up. Keegan did see his biological father from time to time 
um, had a bit of a relationship with him, but obviously my husband was the bigger father figure in his life. Mm. When Keegan was six, well, about four years old, we moved to the UK. I then fell pregnant with my daughter, Nikita, um, which Keegan was so, he loved Nikita to pieces in the beginning. He was a little bit jealous, obviously, because for six years he had been the only child. Mm-hmm. But um, he loved her and everything. And at that stage, just after I, I'd given birth to Nikita, his, Keegan's biological father asked if my husband would adopt Keegan. So we uh, came back to South Africa with um, Keegan and Nikita. And um, we started the adoption process because um, we had to do it in South Africa. And uh, at that stage, I found out I was pregnant again. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we had Trent. So there's 11 months between the teacher and Trent. Not very big. <laughs> sure. Basically stayed in South Africa for about a year and returned back to the UK once the adoption was through. And we probably stayed there for another six years, maybe. Keegan... He battled at school. He was not a, you know, he, he was a bit slow in grasping things. As a child, he was, well, as a child and an adult, he was always wanting acceptance, if that makes sense. Um, you know, he always felt he wasn't accepted. I don't know why. I mean, we always gave him as much love as the other kids in it, but he always, it doesn't matter who the person was, whether it was a friend at school or a teacher or just a random person, mm. he always tried to get the acceptance by doing whatever he could, you know, to to getting them to like him, you know. Um, so he, he just wanted to be liked and accepted all the time. Mm. And it was a very big thing right through Keegan's life. Um, when he was about probably six, seven, he started having a few behavioural problems um, at school. Not not me, but he was behind at school. He He kind of like... Started getting depressive a little bit, not liking himself, if that makes sense. And again, this acceptance mm-hmm. thing was a big thing for him. So we had him in play therapy and things like that. Um, and he grew, he battled in, like I say, the school system in the UK. He came, he had been in school once we went, came back to South Africa to adopt um, him. He went into grade one in South Africa and really, really battled in grade one. So when we went back to the UK, they did some extra work with him and tried to get him up to speed. But he never kind. He never really got there. He was okay in the UK because every year you don't have to pass each grade like you do in South Africa. He would just keep going forward and going forward. However, he was not on the level with the other children, if that made sense. Um, when we got back to South Africa, when he was thirteen, he just could not handle the school system. It was just too much having all these new subjects, and you know, in England it was just English and maths. He had all these new subjects. He just could not hack it. And he ended up going to um, a special needs Alsen school where he also battled and, you know, he he just was not on the level of his peers, if you want to call it that. Mm. So always always battling, which obviously made Keegan feel inferior to everybody else. Again, with this acceptance thing of Keegan, it was quite a problem. So Keegan is like many other young people who simply don't fit into our traditional school system and also not unlike many other young people and adults who seek validation from external sources. I just want to point out one thing here that really hit me as I was listening back to this interview. Linda is sitting in her home in Gauteng on her computer. On Zoom, 
to a person, me, who's basically a complete stranger. And that complete stranger is asking her to share basically her family history and details of her son's childhood that in any other normal situation would be absolutely none of the general public's business. And still really aren't. But because she finds herself in the situation she does, she also finds herself having to do this interview, which is, let's face it, a pretty bizarre thing for any person. Imagine someone coming up to you and saying, Hi, I'm blank. Please sit down and give me a rundown of your son's life from birth to now, warts and all, and go. I'm pointing out how bizarre it is that Linda is having to do this, because I want you to remember that when you listen to her. And imagine how much strength it must take for her to be sitting there, telling me, telling you, all of this. Next up, Linda gets into some of the mental health challenges her son faces. Like his background, this is not necessarily directly pertinent to his disappearance. But it is important for us to get to know Keegan, and it's an aspect of his life that contributes to us understanding the case in its entirety. Times during his life when we find he had depressive episodes, he would go quite dark at times. We did have him in therapy. Um, we had him on medication and things like that, trying to figure out why he was like this, what was wrong, why he would get in so dark. And he sort of went into all these, like, not goth, what kind of goth type of stuff, but really vivid drawings and pictures, you know, and all that type of thing. And, you know, he, he went quite dark at one stage. So we got him a bit of help and everything, he went to hospital, and when he was 18, they diagnosed him with bipolar, and we found out that he had bipolar disorder, and because he had a lot of also a lot of anger issues, he would get angry very, very quickly. So when Keegan started, um, he left school when he was 16, a few problems at school, so we said to him, okay, you can, if you leave school, you can get a job, and then we will pay for your studies as long as you, you'll pay half, we'll pay half, and we'll get your studies out of school, go to college or something like that, which he agreed to. Bipolar disorder, formerly called manic depressive illness or manic depression, is a mental illness that causes unusual shifts in a person's mood, energy, activity levels, and concentration. These shifts can make it difficult to carry out day-to-day -day tasks. There are three types of bipolar disorder. All three types involve clear changes in mood, energy and activity levels. These moods range from periods of extremely up, elevated, irritable or energised behaviour, known as manic episodes, to very down, sad, indifference or hopeless periods, known as depressive episodes. Less severe manic periods are known as hypomanic episodes. People with bipolar disorder experience periods of unusually intense emotion and changes in sleep patterns and activity levels, and engage in behaviours that are out of character for them often without recognising their likely harmful or undesirable effects. 
These distinct periods are called mood episodes. Mood episodes are very different from the person's usual moods and behaviors. During an episode, the symptoms last every day for most of the day. Episodes may also last for longer periods, such as several days or weeks. Although bipolar depression is often treated with antidepressant medication, a mood stabilizer must be taken as well. Taking an antidepressant without a mood stabilizer can trigger a manic episode or rapid cycling in a person with bipolar disorder. Because people with bipolar disorder are more likely to seek help when they're depressed than when they're experiencing mania or hypomania, it's important for healthcare providers to take careful medical history to ensure that bipolar disorder is not mistaken for depression. I discovered two very interesting things about bipolar disorder when listening to a podcast the other day. One is what I've just mentioned about the extreme danger of medicating a person with bipolar disorder with only antidepressants. Sadly, in some cases, this mistake has led to the suicide of some people. And also, that bipolar disorder has interesting self-reported impact on the lives of those living with it. Many people living with bipolar disorder are extremely successful in their chosen fields of work because they have, firstly, been able to access and stay on the correct medication, and secondly, because they've learned to harness the features of their disorder and actually put them to use in their work. Also, many of these people self-reported experiencing difficulties in traditional school environments but really bloomed when they found a field of work that jolled with them. You would have heard Linda mention earlier that Keegan had been adopted by his stepfather at his biological dad's request when he was six. The Deploy family didn't ever feel the need to raise this with Keegan, as Linda's husband, his adopted dad, was his dad, and there was never any question around that. But when Keegan was 16... He did require clarification around this and had to come to terms with the fact that his biological dad had never been in his life. Linda says that when he was 18, he'd made contact with his bio dad and they'd met up and had some interactions, which didn't really bloom into any type of long-lasting relationship, but perhaps sated Keegan's curiosity around his biological dad. Unfortunately, Keegan's learning difficulties made college a struggle for him too, and Linda says that he struggled to stick to expected routines at different jobs he worked at. She also feels that his level of emotional maturity was perhaps at least five years behind his peers, which may have meant he was experiencing expectations from employers and co-workers that were beyond his current capabilities. Although people living with bipolar disorder as well as other mental health challenges are often more at risk of being harmed themselves by others or harming themselves than actually committing any acts of violence against others, 
it often remains extremely difficult for families to manage the behaviours and challenges that can come with certain mental health conditions. This is made far worse by the fact that we don't have anywhere near adequate mental health resources for families in this country. And of course, that's made even more difficult when the person is an adult, because you cannot force the person to do anything. And sometimes hard decisions have to be made for the greater good. It was always ups and downs with Keegan, you know, with everybody, even with me, you know. We were very, very close, Keegan, and you don't get me wrong, he was here five out of seven days a week if he wasn't working. Very much a home child, you know, he always came home. He was always here. But we did have issues with him, and there were arguments, obviously, but that was who he was, but we knew how to you know, resolve it and calm him and things like that. So unfortunately, um, because he clashed a lot with us, we, we couldn't always afford to have him here either. So he moved out a few times. He was in and out, in and out, in and out of the house quite a lot. He did end up homeless once or twice. There were, you know, it did happen. We Then he had a car accident in 2017 and we took him back again. He came back home for about two years. He, you know, we obviously got him right because he was in wheelchair and for six months he was he was completely in a wheelchair for six months so that obviously impacted his life as well couldn't get a job couldn't do anything because of that and his legs were never ever the same he um actually had operation he broke both his ankles he was on crutches for a very long time as well and of course nobody wanted to hire anybody that first of all didn't have a trick secondly had some kind of a disability at the time um, so it was very, very difficult for him. So he mm-hmm. kind of just ended up in limbo. He just, you know, he would go stay with whoever, whoever he could. We would take him when we could, but my husband lost his job and we just could not afford, you know, to have him here as well. Even though we wanted him here as our son, we couldn't. We took him when we could, but, you know, at once the stage got to, we had to say to Keegan, listen, Keegan, you need to look for somewhere to stay. So Keegan did um, end up staying in the shelter from time to time. Um, he did stay in the mess shelter in Kempton Park for a while and um, just to sleep. It was like he was here mostly like so during the day. It was just mm-hmm. sleeping basically. He worked with my daughter in 2019 and he was doing really, really good. He was back on his meds. We had him on the right medications. He was doing great, you know. He, everything seemed to be going great, you know. Um mm-hmm. Both, actually, my, both my sons and my daughter were all working together, so it was quite nice. Despite all the ups and downs in his life, Keegan was doing really well. For someone living with bipolar disorder, being on the right meds and being able to stick to taking them for two years is a huge win. It can be extremely difficult to find the right mix of medication – And then, unfortunately, part of bipolar means that when the person is experiencing a high state, which looks completely different for everyone and may last for quite some time, they may feel that they no longer need their meds and go off them. But Keegan really seemed to be in a good space. Sadly, Keegan lost his job and things started declining for him. He remained on his medication. Linda tells me that when he would sleep at the shelter, she would dispense a few days' worth or a week's worth of meds for him to ensure that no one at the shelter stole them. But he got into a new relationship, and Linda wasn't entirely sure how healthy that was on the whole, 
as the young lady seemed to have some struggles of her own that she was dealing with. In January 2020, we started to hear about this virus that had appeared in China. Looking back, it feels like everything happened overnight. But at that time, I think everyone figured it would never go as far as it did. The word pandemic didn't even cross most people's minds. And a virus in a far-flung place certainly would not have been on top of Keegan's mind either. He spent a lot of time at home during this time, even though he slept elsewhere. And on Saturday the 29th of February 2020, Keegan was in the Kempton Park area, and he told his mom and brother that he was going to be heading out to do a job for someone. His brother made sure he had breakfast before he left, and Linda was pleased that Keegan would be earning some money and doing something constructive for the day. As he chatted to his mom on the phone that day, she had no idea that this would be the moment in time that would change everything. The information I'm about to share with you is gleaned from three sources. Linda Duploy, Mike Fenter, who started working on this case during his time with the non-profit organisation SACCW, and despite having moved into the private sector since, has continued to stay connected to it. And then a third source, who we're going to call Steve. And no, that's not his real name. But rest assured, he is a trusted source with very reliable information. Keegan Deploy left Kempton Park on the morning of the 29th of February 2020. At 12.01, he was at Pick and Pay Hyper, Montana, in Pretoria. There, he purchased a four-kilogram bag of charcoal briquettes. He paid cash for this purchase and was given 15 rand and 10 cents in change. As Keegan started to exit the store, it's believed that he was stopped by security personnel. That afternoon, Keegan Deploy would be arrested and charged with shoplifting. The circumstances around this incident are unknown, but it's believed that besides the bag of charcoal, Keegan also attempted to leave the store with an air fryer or similar appliance, which he had not paid for. Keegan was taken to Sinoville Police Station, where he was processed and booked into the holding cells. His belongings, including but not limited to the receipts from the charcoal purchase, his cell phone, a cell phone charger, a packet of cigarettes, a belt, a cigarette lighter, a debit card belonging to a female who would later be identified as his girlfriend, the change from his purchase, and his wallet were all placed into evidence bags and sealed. On those bags, the booking officer recorded the dates of Keegan's arrest, the case number, and the officer's own name. The words, Cenoville, prisoner's property, were written on the bags. Some articles have stated that Keegan was not given the opportunity to phone anyone from the police station upon his arrest, but we don't really know that for sure. We do know that no one in Keegan's family received a call. When I chatted with her about this, Linda reasons that on this day, 
Keegan may have not wanted to get in contact with her, perhaps because he was ashamed and hoped that he could sort the matter out without her knowing. There's also the fact that Linda says she knows Keegan couldn't memorise her cell phone number as much as he tried, so even if he had been able to make a call, if he hadn't had access to his cell phone, he wouldn't have had access to her telephone number. We don't know if he called anyone else. This was, after all, not a terribly serious charge, and it's very likely that Keegan reasoned he would be processed on the Monday, and then he could perhaps arrange bail or make some other plan without having to involve his family. But things didn't play out that way. And that is because the next six months are a bit of a black hole in time. Linda had believed that her son had been headed out to Johannesburg that Saturday. She didn't hear anything more from him the rest of the day or on the following Sunday, but she did get a call from one of his friends that day. Keegan's friend asked if Linda or anyone else in the family had heard from him, as they couldn't find him. Linda tried Keegan's phone, and it was turned off. She began to worry. She went to Norcom Park Police Station with the intention of reporting her son missing. There she was informed that Keegan had been arrested in Cenoville the previous day and that he'd already been transferred to the remand centre at Pretoria Central Prison to await trial. I have no doubts that Linda would have been assured by the officers at Norcom Park Police Station that the charge was not very serious and that he would likely be out relatively soon. But that's not what happened. Keegan was not released. Instead, he was transferred to the awaiting trial section of Pretoria Central Prison. On the same day Linda was told her son had been arrested, news broke of the first confirmed COVID infection in South Africa. As we all know by now, Things moved very quickly after that. And 26 days after Keegan was arrested, the entire country shut down due to the outbreak of COVID-19. Correctional facilities also shut down, with only staff allowed to enter and exit. Visits were completely halted, and those incarcerated had absolutely no contact with the outside world. Awaiting trial prisoners could not see their families or their legal representatives, and this continued on for many, many months. In April 2020, the Department of Correctional Services, recognising that they were sitting on a ticking time bomb with a huge number of inmates in one place, started to release awaiting trial prisoners and those whose sentences were almost complete, where the crimes were non-violent. These individuals were tested for COVID and then released if they had a place to lock down in. Keegan was not among them. The next sort of confirmed movement for Keegan Deploy occurred on the 23rd of July 2020, and I'll explain later why I say sort of. This is when Keegan Deploy appeared before a magistrate at Pretoria North Court on the charge of shoplifting. He pled guilty 
and was handed down a sentence of 30 days in prison, suspended for five years. Considering he'd already served six times the amount of time he'd been sentenced to, and the sentence was suspended in any case, he, according to officials at Pretoria North Court, was free to leave. And he did. Allegedly. Now for an explanation on all the sort-ofs, allegedly's, and according-to's. That day in court was the last day that Keegan was ever seen, or believed to have been seen. He disappeared after that. And for more than three years, there has been absolutely no sign of him anywhere. In fact, we don't even actually know that the person who's alleged to have appeared in court on the 23rd of July 2020 even was Keegan. Why? Because there are no cameras at Pretoria North Court. Mike Fencer went there as part of his investigation into Keegan's disappearance. And nope, no cameras. So... There is no footage of Keegan entering the court, or leaving it for that matter. But even if there was CCTV footage from surrounding shops, for instance, most places only hold footage for 30 days. And Keegan's disappearance, unfortunately, would only be discovered after that period had elapsed. For six months, Linda Deploy was told that her son was in a locked-down remand centre. He wasn't going anywhere, and she wasn't getting in. She was told that as soon as the court system was functioning again, Keegan would be given a trial date. But Linda only managed to discover that her son had already appeared in court almost six weeks after it happened. Every time she inquired about her son's whereabouts during that time, she was given a different story. At one point, the remand centre was telling her that they'd never even heard of a person called Keegan Deploy. Eventually, she was able to determine that her son had allegedly been transported from the Department of Correctional Services at Pretoria Central to Pretoria North Court on the 23rd of July. What she discovered next, though, horrified her and told her that something was very, very wrong. All of Keegan's belongings, still bagged and sealed, exactly as they had been on the 29th of February, were still at Cenoville Police Station. He'd never collected them. His cell phone, his wallet, his cigarettes, his lighter, his girlfriend's debit card, 15 rand, enough to buy a small amount of airtime to call his mom. All still there, untouched. Now, Linda understood that something had gone wrong, and she insisted that she wanted to open a missing persons case for her son. The case has since been headed by two different investigating officers, or IOs. Most people involved here have told me that the first I.O., unfortunately, didn't seem to put much effort at all into investigating the case. The second I.O., again, by all accounts, has been far more helpful. In September 2020, 
Linda Deploy suddenly found herself thrust into a world she'd only ever viewed from afar before. The world of missing people. Within this world, desperate family members exist in the orbit of police officers, private investigators, leads, scams, hopes, disappointments, and endless hours of worry. Linda says that she never would have made it through without the support of the many NGOs and individuals who stepped up to share their experience and resources. And of course, she had no idea that today, more than three years later, she would still be searching for her son. So what has happened between that moment when Linda realised her son was missing and today? What leads have been explored what can be counted out as a possibility, and what are the possible theories around where Keegan Deploy is. We don't know a heck of a lot for sure in this case, but we do know that Keegan was definitely arrested on the 29th of February 2020 and booked into the awaiting trial section of Pretoria Central Prison. He was fingerprinted at this time because he'd misplaced his ID book so police needed to confirm his identity. Linda confirmed that those prints matched those at home affairs, so she knows that this was her son. After Keegan is transferred to the remand centre and lockdown starts, everything gets a lot less certain. Mike Fenter shed some light on some of the possibilities he chased down. Firstly, he went to the Pretoria North Court that Keegan is alleged to have appeared at and asked for CCTV footage, as I mentioned. He was told there was nothing available. He also requested rosters or any sign-in or out documents from that day so that Linda could verify whether she could recognise her son's handwriting or signature. He was told no such documents or registers exist. So essentially... According to this court's employees, individuals are simply delivered to the court holding cells, taken to appear in court, and if the events of their court proceedings that day result in them being allowed to leave on their own recognizance, they're simply released. If they're sentenced, they're not asked to sign acknowledgments of receipt of that sentence. Interesting. Something very weird was discovered on the piece of paper that detailed Keegan's shoplifting sentence, though. Remember he was sentenced to 30 days in prison, suspended for five years. Well, according to this piece of paper, a pretty insane typo said that Keegan had been sentenced to 30 years in prison, suspended for five years. Of course, that's a mistake and Linda would push to eventually get that changed on the system. But it begs the question, if that kind of clerical mistake can slip through, what else could go wrong between the remand centre and the court? Because Keegan had previously stayed in shelters, all of the shelters in Pretoria, as well as the areas he'd previously stayed in, Kempton and Edenvale, were checked and no one had seen Keegan. Although Keegan does not have a passport, systems were also checked to ensure he hadn't left the country under his own identity. 
Sadly, of course, mortuaries have also been checked, with the current investigating officer having informed Linda that he'd gone to each of the most probable state mortuaries and checked the details of deceased individuals who'd been brought to the mortuaries but not identified. We know that the first method of identification used for unidentified deceased individuals is fingerprints. These are run through the Home Affairs database if the individual is older than 16 and may have a national ID. Then they can also be run through other databases, including those for arrested individuals or registered missing person cases. The only time this doesn't produce results is if the person is not registered with Home Affairs or if the deceased remains are found in a condition in which fingerprints cannot be taken. We know that Keegan's fingerprints were picked up by police just six months before he disappeared. So if he had sadly passed away and that was used as an identifier, they would have been able to identify him. Keegan also had several tattoos, which are another really helpful way that bodies can be identified. The I.O. searched through several cases where unidentified deceased individuals had tattoos, but has found nothing matching Keegan's tattoos. Of course, DNA is another option for identification, but that is only ever as good as the sample you have to compare it to, which in this case would be nothing if Keegan had passed away in the period after he allegedly appeared in court. Linda has confirmed that her DNA has been taken for possible future identifications. There is also one other way that Keegan could be identified if he had indeed sadly passed away. When Keegan was in the car accident Linda mentioned, he had a titanium pin inserted into his ankle. When I heard this, I remembered a few other cases, mostly international I'd heard of, where unidentified individuals had been identified through medical devices in their bodies. Any medical implant device is assigned a serial number when it's manufactured. When the device is implanted into a person, that serial number is recorded by the hospital doing the implant and entered into a database for that country with the patient's information. In a few cases I've heard about, Medical devices like pins, pacemakers and plates have helped to identify the person whose remains have been discovered. I wondered whether this would work in South Africa too, and didn't hold out too much hope, because Keegan did receive his treatments at a state hospital, which, as we know, are under-resourced and not particularly good at record-keeping. So I hit up one of my special contacts, And it seems that this would indeed be the case in South Africa too. In fact, it's been used before. Very rarely, but it does happen. And it would be another option for identification. So although we don't want it to be the case that Keegan is deceased, these avenues have been looked into, at least up until this point. Of course, one of the most important parts of a missing persons investigation is interviewing the people last seen with the missing person. In this case, that would either be his fellow awaiting trial inmates at the Roman Centre 
or the staff members that were in the courtroom the day Keegan's alleged to have appeared. None of these people have been interviewed. The other people that are important to interview are those closest to the missing person. We don't know whether police have interviewed Keegan's friends, but those who stayed at the shelter at the same time as him, including his girlfriend, whose debit card was in his possession at the time of Keegan's arrest, were interviewed, at least by Mike Fenter. All of his fellow shelter occupants were as shocked at Keegan's disappearance as his family. Many said that Keegan was one of the most consistent among them, and they knew he had a really good relationship with his family, so none of them could understand why he would disappear if it was of his own accord. Unfortunately, Mike Fenter shared with me that the young lady Keegan was seeing at the time had sent him on a bit of a wild goose chase, giving him several different locations where she believed Keegan was living and later asking for items of value to be given to her, such as a tent, in exchange for information. Mike was able to disqualify any information that had come from this source. Keegan's cell phone may well hold valuable clues. Police held on to his belongings for some time before eventually giving them back to Linda, but his cell phone was never forensically analysed by the South African Police Service. His family tried to charge the phone and switch it on, but something went wrong, and they haven't been able to access it since. This, of course, doesn't mean that the phone is beyond any investigation. Cell analysts at the SAPS can and have gleaned significant information from cell phones that ordinary people could no longer use. Of course, Keegan did not have access to his phone for six months but it will provide the information of the people he was in contact with on the day he was arrested, and that could be a vital piece of the puzzle. Over the years, Linda has received several tips about people living unhoused in various areas who look similar to Keegan. She has investigated all of these sightings as far as possible, but none of them have proven helpful. And that is pretty much the grand sum of what we know has been run down and either excluded or remains unanswered. So what are the theories or possibilities about what could have happened to Keegan? The first is that the person who appeared in court on the 23rd of July was not Keegan Deploy. Now, I know this sounds bizarre, but bear with me. It's been known to happen that awaiting trial inmates will swap identities with one another either while awaiting trial or on the day of a court appearance. Essentially what happens is that someone with a more serious crime to answer for who also happens to have some resources will approach a person whose general profile, gender, race, etc. is similar to them and who has a lesser charge against them and offer them either a sum of money or some other form of tender in order to swap identities and take their charge on them. Again, I know this sounds bizarre and like it can't possibly be true, and I thought that too. But I'm going to say two words, and then you can tell me whether it's really impossible. Tabu Besta. 
still think it's impossible? Me neither. And I've also had it confirmed by people who actually work for the SAPS and DCS that this does happen. And in all fairness, it happens far more often with people who are in the country illegally. However, Keegan was, for all intents and purposes at that time, undocumented. He did not have any form of identification with him at the time of his arrest. So essentially, the way this works is inmate A, who let's say is awaiting trial for assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm, may have access to something that inmate B, who's awaiting trial for a lesser charge, perhaps a theft of some small value item, would value. Now I frame it that way because monetary payment is not always the biggest value. For some people with substance use disorders, drugs may be valuable enough to do this. For those who feel particularly at risk in a prison environment, just the offer of protection may be enough. For others, a promise or a threat that their family members may either be harmed or alternatively protected or assisted may be the thing that convinces them to swap identities with inmate A and take on their charges. Now, this can only be achieved in very specific circumstances. If inmate A is expected to have a long, drawn-out trial, that's not going to work, because they'd be at risk of being found out. But if both inmate A and inmate B are planning on pleading guilty, and they'd essentially just be receiving their sentences, this swap-over is entirely doable. So, theory slash possibility number one, Keegan swapped identities with another person and is currently in the prison system under a different name. Now, you would have heard me say when I talk about parole that unfortunately the Department of Correctional Services does not always know offhand where a given offender is at a given time. Given enough time and resources, I'm sure that they can find them, but this is the reality. There is no way to have a single person at DCS access a database and say 100% for sure that the individual they are searching for is or is not in the Department of Correctional Services. ID numbers, inmate numbers, and names get captured incorrectly. The wrong facility name can be selected from a drop-down list. A name may get entirely skipped in the capturing process. There are multiple possibilities as to why it would not be a simple matter to figure out if Keegan is in fact imprisoned in South Africa. Add to that the fact that Keegan may be imprisoned under someone else's name, and that becomes even more complex. If the identity swap thing is a remote possibility, I do think it would be advisable for the SAPS to pull the court role from the day Keegan disappeared and check that role for other individuals who match his profile. Young, white, male. Of course, the swapover may not have happened on that day. So in that case, anyone who was incarcerated in the awaiting trial section of Pretoria Central from the 29th of February 2020 
to the 23rd of July 2020 could be a possibility if they, again, match Keegan's profile. If the SAPS was able to narrow down a list of individuals from both of those sources that were young, white males, those names should be tracked. Where are those individuals now? Are they imprisoned? If so, is the person imprisoned under that offender name actually the same person on the list? DCS was recently mandated to restart with building the incarcerated offender DNA database. And that could be another way to determine whether or not Keegan is incarcerated in South Africa. But then, the SAPS would have to ensure that his mom's DNA sample is actually put into the system to compare with that specific database. Which makes me wonder, if a person goes missing and there's a possibility they've been incarcerated, would this DNA database be checked? That's what it's there for, after all, to solve cases. And not just murder and rape cases, but surely missing person cases too. During my conversation with Linda, she tells me a story that was conveyed to her by another family, whose son had been missing for nine months. They believed he'd been arrested, but the police claimed he hadn't. There was no record of him anywhere to be found. But nine months after he went missing, he phoned his parents from inside prison, from a cell phone that had been smuggled in. He'd been there all along. I confirmed the veracity of the story myself, and it's indeed happened. So that is the first possibility. The second theory, or possibility, is that Keegan may be deceased. I've already explored this possibility earlier, and although I do think it's unlikely, it is still sadly a possibility. Crime levels decreased significantly during lockdown because people weren't allowed to move around freely. If Keegan had come to some harm or suffered an accident somehow, his remains would likely have been quickly found if they were out in the open. But if they were purposefully hidden, with fewer people moving around to discover his remains, it's entirely possible he was only recovered when he was beyond fingerprints identification or sadly, that his remains have still not been discovered, if they were hidden well enough. During the period that Keegan was allegedly released from custody, South Africa was in lockdown level 3. This meant that no one except those with permits could move around between 9pm at night and 4am in the morning. Any unhoused people out and about during those times would have encountered police at some point, I'm sure. Although the possibility is slim that Keegan is deceased and unidentified, it remains a possibility. The third possibility is that Keegan has decided not to return home and he is living either housed or unhoused somewhere in South Africa. Keegan did have a really good relationship with his family. He loved his siblings and his mom and dad, and Linda says that all of his friends have told her they have no doubts that if Keegan could have come home, he would have. 
or at the very least, that by now he would have made contact. Linda is realistic, though. She understands better than anyone that her son was living with a mental health condition that could have drastically spiraled in the six months he was awaiting trial. It is most likely that he was unmedicated during that time. Linda says that Keegan found it difficult to admit that he had bipolar disorder, so if he'd begun to present with behaviour related to his disorder, he may not have been able to articulate what was wrong. If he was on some off-chance provided with medication, there is also a scary possibility that he may have only been given antidepressants and not a mood stabiliser, which, as I explained earlier, is very dangerous in a person with bipolar disorder. Add to that the fact that Keegan had never been incarcerated like that, and he likely would have dealt with a lot of traumatic situations during those six months. And Linda acknowledges that although the Keegan who left her home in February 2020 would have come home, she cannot say for sure who the Keegan was that came out of that remand centre. Is it possible that struggling with his mental health and new trauma from incarceration, Keegan simply decided he no longer had a place in his family? Yes, that's possible. In that case, he will either be living unhoused or he would be with someone who, for whatever reason, may have taken him in. The fourth possibility is that Keegan is a victim of human trafficking. And I know that's going to raise an eyebrow, so let me explain. The definition of human trafficking from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime is as follows. Quote, Human trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring or receipt of people through force, fraud or deception with the aim of exploiting them for profit. Men, women and children of all ages and from all backgrounds can become victims of this crime, which occurs in every region of the world. End quote. One of the sources I spoke with, the one who checked whether Keegan's ID number had registered crossing outside of South Africa, mentioned to me that it is not at all uncommon for vulnerable people like Keegan to be used as drug mules, often under false pretenses at first. The source says that many South Africans of, of trafficking of this nature and end up imprisoned in foreign countries with no way to contact their loved ones or they're simply too ashamed to do so. Now, when Keegan was allegedly released, international travel was halted. It only reopened under Level 1 in October 2020. Is there a possibility that someone had convinced Keegan that they had an opportunity for him, and the minutes he was released, they took custody of him, harboured him for three months, and then, as soon as international travel reopened, sent him on a mission to an unknown destiny? Yes, that is entirely possible. The drug industry was hugely impacted by the COVID lockdowns internationally. Drug dealers would have been desperate to start moving their product again. 
perhaps so desperate that they would start recruiting within awaiting trial remand centres. The fact that Keegan's name does not come up as having left South Africa does not mean he did not leave. Just like people can be incarcerated under aliases, they can also travel under aliases and fake passports. I will also add here that there have been a few other similar cases to Keegan since he disappeared. Young, vulnerable males disappearing from court in and around Pretoria and the Greater Gauteng area. We tend to think about human trafficking as the realm of children being abducted and sold. But the truth is, it runs far deeper than that. Young males are actually one of the largest victim pools in human trafficking, where they're made promises of jobs or opportunities, which turn out to be completely false or very different when they arrive at their destination. If this is the case, then Keegan is sadly going to be much more difficult to find. There is an Interpol yellow list, which is a database of individuals who've disappeared and are believed to have been taken out of their country of origin without their informed consent. That list would be a good place for Keegan's name to be, there would have to be some proof that he's indeed been trafficked for that to happen. In both of the previous possibilities, though, what bothers me is that Keegan didn't collect his belongings from the police station. In the trafficking possibility, perhaps I can understand that better. He may have been convinced not to worry about it, and traffickers certainly wouldn't want him having his cell phone, which could be tracked. In the prior possibility, though, that he went missing of his own volition, that doesn't make sense to me. Keegan had no money. That cell phone was the only thing of value he owned. And there was cash from his change in there, too. Not much, mind you, but when you have nothing, 15 rand is a lot. Keegan not collecting his belongings is a major red flag to me. It means he either couldn't, because he never left the Ramon Center, or he was convinced not to. And that doesn't bode well for him moving freely and independently. Even if Keegan is sadly deceased, it's highly unlikely he passed away between the courthouse and the police station. I will admit, though, that looking at Google Maps, the police station is actually quite a ways away from the courthouse. It's at least a 15-minute drive from the court to Sinoville Police Station. So perhaps he simply didn't have any way to get there, and things went south as he was trying to make a plan. Linda says, to her knowledge, Keegan didn't know Pretoria very well. So even if he decided to walk, he may have gotten lost, given up, or come across the wrong people on the way. So really, as far as I can see it, those are the four possibilities about what could have happened to Keegan Deploy. I do think that many of these can be deeply investigated and included or excluded. But there's one more thing I'd like to say about the situation, and I say it with the greatest of respect, but also the utmost insistence that there has been a serious travesty here. 
Keegan Deploy was last seen in the custody of the Department of Correctional Services. They had a responsibility for his safety while he was in their custody. The Department of Correctional Services cannot prove that they actually delivered Keegan to court. Or maybe they can and they just haven't. But as I see it, and I'll say a few of my more qualified sources agree with me, DCS needs to tell Linda Deploy where her son is. They need to be using their resources to either definitively prove that he's not still in their custody or provide proof that he was handed over to the court system. And if they can prove that, then the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development needs to prove that they released Keegan and that he actually left their custody. Those are two very big departments who, although under-resourced like most, still have a hell of a lot more resources than the Deploy family. So why are they shrugging their shoulders? Linda Deploy just wants to know where her son is. Keegan's friends and siblings just want to know what happened to him. His younger sister, Shaylee, she was born in the UK as well. Keegan and her, there's a 10-year gap between her and Keegan, Shaylee. Mm. She and Keegan were extremely close, especially in the last few years. Um, They became very, very, very close. And he was like everything to her, you know. She absolutely adored him. She was 15 last time she saw him. She's now 19 years old. She misses him. She, you know... She would sit at her bedroom window hoping that Keegan would come because sometimes he would come at night when we were sleeping and he, he was like a bit late and he shouldn't really you know, wake everybody up. So he'd go tap on her window and talk to her, you know. So I'm in the area, you know, can, I, can we have a chat up thing? She would go talk to him. She would sit at a window drawing and waiting and waiting for Keegan to appear, you know. wanting to see how, you know, her and his birthday are a week apart. So every year it's kind of like a, a really hard thing for her as well because she knows that just after her birthday it would be Keegan's birthday and they can't celebrate it, you know. Every year when Keegan – one thing with Keegan is he always wanted a cake for his birthday. It didn't matter. <laughs> he just expected it. It was expected. And um, he would come every time on his birthday, he, you know, if, if he was working, he would make a plan to come after work or whatever, but he would come and he knew that mom had a cake for him, you know. In December 2021, Keegan's case was covered on the television program for Miss. Linda tells me that Keegan's sister Nikita also created a TikTok video about her brother's disappearance, which pretty much went viral, receiving over 5 million views. Unfortunately, most of those are people overseas, but that really is still an incredible achievement and effort shown by a sister. And that just goes to show, I think, how much this family desperately miss Keegan. At one point during our conversation, Linda says something that just breaks my heart. You know, maybe he thought we abandoned him, maybe. I don't know. Is that what's happened? He he was in the prison and because he didn't understand what was going on around him maybe or completely what was, you know, what was the, the procedure 
um, that he thinks that we just abandoned him and he thought, oh, well, my family don't love me anymore. But obviously we do. And, you know, we've mm. been searching for him from day one. I do my best as this weird outsider to convince Linda that this isn't true, that Keegan never would have believed this, that I can hear in her voice she's not entirely convinced. Perhaps she is not entirely convinced of anything anymore, and who can blame her? In the space of three years, she's had her entire life turned upside down. Her firstborn son has disappeared like a puff of smoke. And sadly, that hasn't been the only difficulty the Deploy family has had to deal with. Linda asked me not to share the specifics about what's happened since Keegan's been gone on the podcast because she wants to be able to tell Keegan in person when he comes home. But suffice to say that this family has been to hell and back in the last few years. There have been some really beautiful moments too, of course. In addition to all the support they've received in their search for Keegan, which Linda expresses gratitude for to all who've helped, Keegan has also become an uncle for the first time since he went missing. His sister Nikita was pregnant when he disappeared, and she's since delivered Keegan's little niece. And this is another reason Linda says she finds it so hard to believe that he'd choose not to come home. Keegan was insanely excited about Nikita having her baby. He was so thrilled at the prospect of being an uncle. Linda really doesn't believe he would have missed that for the world. Linda, like so many other family members of missing people, has had to learn how to deal with this weird merry-go-round of emotions that is the world of missing loved ones. It's something I hear from every single family member I've spoken to. I pushed and I pushed to find them, and I pushed so hard, I almost pushed everyone else away. I almost completely lost myself. At this point, they do one of two things. They either realize that they're no good to anyone, including their missing loved one, if they completely fall apart and start to put boundaries in place to protect themselves. Or they carry on pushing, and there's often no going back after that. Families are destroyed by these situations. Human beings end up losing their lives while trying to solve a seemingly endless riddle. So Linda now does what so many others have learned to do out of necessity. She gives her all to Keegan's search in short, sharp bursts. And then she knows she has to take a break and look around her at the world she lives in, which may not contain Keegan right now, but still contains many other beautiful loved ones. Linda shared with me that not all the attention on social media around Keegan's case has been positive. Unfortunately, there have been some instances where people have gone off on wild, uneducated tangents, trying to link Keegan's disappearance to other crimes that have happened in the group of people that used the same shelter as him, 
and essentially making some pretty mean and unfair allegations about Keegan that not only really upset his family, but perhaps most importantly, don't help to move his case forward at all. I have committed to Linda that this will not happen on any of the social media platforms I run for this podcast. And I can make that guarantee, because anyone who tries to do this will be banned and blocked immediately. No questions asked. Take your finger-pointing and baseless allegations elsewhere, please. And thank you. This family doesn't need that. What they do need is support. As they've been supported by many already, but there are some really action-oriented things that I think we can do as a true crime community to help move this case forward. Linda expressed that she'd always wanted to arrange a full walkthrough of the area in Pretoria where Keegan went missing. She wants to bring community members out and distribute posters and just try and jog memories and get people to keep Keegan at the top of their minds. She says it would also give her peace of mind to be able to walk those streets herself and know that her son is most definitely not there. One of Linda's friends set up a GoFundMe when Keegan went missing, which at the time was going to be to fund a private investigator. Instead, Linda's sister ended up funding that PI, which unfortunately led absolutely nowhere. And so I suggested that we share that GoFundMe again when I release this episode, and if anyone would like to donate, those funds can go to setting up a walk through Pretoria for Linda and additional supporters. There's also a Facebook group that Linda started that you can join to show your support as well. So that's one way you can help. But there are other ways too. I'm going to be sharing Keegan's missing person post on social media when I release this episode. I'll also be uploading it to my website, truecrimesouthafrica.com. No matter where in South Africa you live, if you have any organizations that assist unhoused people near you, shelters, NPOs, anything like that, please print a few of those posters and take them there. And I mean anywhere in South Africa, because you never know. If you work in the prison system in any capacity or you visit friends or family members there, again, in any prison in South Africa, please print out Keegan's poster and take it with you the next time you go. Show it to the people there and ask them to keep an eye out for a young man who looks like Keegan. If you work at Pretoria North Court or know someone who does, please distribute Keegan's poster among your co-workers. It may start jogging memories. If you are a court reporter or a court photographer, or had a case on at Pretoria North Court on the 23rd of July 2020, please make contact with me or Linda Deploy. Even if you don't think you saw Keegan, anything you can tell us about what happened at the court that day or photographs taken there may be useful. Everything will be kept in the strictest confidence. If you work in the mental health field in a state capacity, 
Please keep your eyes open for Keegan. He does need his medication to help balance his symptoms, and if he's unhoused, he may end up in one of your facilities at some point. And finally, but certainly not least, if you are any human being living in any town in South Africa, please keep an eye out for Keegan. If you see an unhoused person you believe may be Keegan, please make a note of the exact location and time you spotted him, and if you can safely do so without invading the privacy of the individual, please take a photograph. Do not share photographs of anyone you think is Keegan on social media, please. Unhoused individuals have the same right to privacy and dignity as everyone else. If you send me or Linda these details and photographs, you can then delete them immediately from your own phone to protect the person you're photographing. And as soon as the lead has been run down, we will do the same on our side. I will be trying as much as possible to use the resources I have to see what I can help with too. Keegan Deploy is now 29 years old. He has brown hair and blue-green eyes. He is 1.7 metres tall and weighed approximately 56 kilograms at the time of his disappearance. Keegan has tattoos on his chest and arms, one of a cross, a snake, and another which is faded wording that says, in memory of. He also has scars on his ankles from his operation and a scar on his neck. Keegan may appear disorientated or combative if he's still struggling with not being on his medication. He just needs help. I will leave contact details for the investigating officer, my email, and Linda's contacts in in the show notes as well as on social media. Those are the things that will help to identify Keegan. But there are other things perhaps even more important, which should help us to fuel the search for him. Keegan is a son. He's a brother, a friend. He's an uncle. He's a young man who's had some challenges to face and just deserves the best chance to overcome those. He's the missing piece of the Deploy family. He's Shaley's big brother the one she sits at her window, waiting for. Keegan Deploy, your family did not abandon you. You know that. Your mom has very clearly not been whole since the day you went missing. Your siblings' lives are moving forward, but they undoubtedly feel the pain of your absence every single day. I must be honest, since Keegan's gone missing, so many people have messaged me that know Keegan. I didn't even knew he knew, yeah. you know what I mean? Wow. And was like, oh, no, we know Keegan from here, and we knew Keegan from there, and, oh, he's such a nice guy, and he was so friendly, and we got on so well, and oh, I'm so sorry, you know. So I know he was liked. Yeah. You know, and like that, that makes me feel great. As, as his mom, I'm like, he's not a bad guy. He, he's, he's misunderstood. When Linda said this, it hit me. 
Keegan had always wanted to fit in. And now, in his absence, his deep belonging is proven. Keegan did fit in. He always did. Into his family, his community, his friend groups. His puzzle piece may have sometimes needed a little bit of smoothing off at the edges. But he always fit. You were always exactly where you were meant to be, Keegan. And I really hope one day soon we'll get to tell you that. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.